0: When we lived up on the north coast, uh, we had a friend who had a very active eight-year-old son. And the son came rushing into the kitchen one uh, afternoon and said to his mum, "Come and watch this. You've got to see this." And he went flying down the hall in the house. So she followed him down the hall, which was actually into her bedroom. And she walked into the bedroom a little bit horrified to find her son standing on the chest of drawers on one side of the room. She stood at the door, watched to see what was going to happen next. The son dived off the chest of drawers, did a somersault in the air and landed on the bed on the other side of the room. But he landed on the bed with such force that he actually bounced off and went head first into the headboard and he rubbed his head and looked at his mum and said, that's exactly what happened last time I did it. Repetition can be a valuable lesson. It can be a helpful thing for us and the writer of Daniel is very well aware of repetition because we've got a story today that's almost identical to the one that we read in chapter three. It's just the names and the mode of death are different but almost every other detail of the story is exactly the same. Uh, we had a story uh, in chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego being thrown into the fire. Both stories, the king issues a decree that requires God's people to ultimately be unfaithful. In both stories, the punishment for the crime is death. In both stories, there are other public officials who want to get the heroes. They want them out of the way. In both stories, God's men remain faithful to God and in both stories, God pulls off an amazing rescue. But let's have a look at the story because there are a few other details in here that we do need to notice. By the time we reach Daniel chapter six, it's now a whole different empire that Daniel is living in. He was taken captive at age kind of 14 or 15 by the Babylonians, but now the Babylonians are gone. It's the Medes and the Persians under the rule of King Darius. Well, they're the new superpower in the world. They're the ones who are ruling over things. And Daniel finds favour with King Darius, just as he had with King Nebuchadnezzar. The king recognises Daniel's honesty, his integrity, and Daniel is keen to be a part of the leadership of this new empire. Darius appoints 120, they call them satraps, they're really just governors, regional supervisors, 120 of them spread out through the country, public servants to do the day-to-day running of the kingdom. But three administrators are appointed, three men who will be King Darius's right-hand men to look after those 120 governors and make sure that they do the right thing. And Daniel is one of those three. In fact, Darius is so impressed with Daniel that he's actually going to make him number one of the three. He will be the one who will have the ultimate responsibility for ruling over the whole kingdom. Daniel, who had worked hard in the Babylonian Empire, is now working hard in the Persian Empire to seek the peace and prosperity of the people. Now, while Daniel clearly res- well, Darius clearly respects Daniel, the same can't be said for the public servants. Uh, they disliked him, and disliked him immensely would be the right way to describe it. They don't want Daniel ruling over Babylon. We don't exactly know why. Um, maybe it was because they couldn't do the things that they would do to sup- feather their own nest, Uh, I remember speaking to Andrew Scipione, uh, New South Wales Police Commissioner, and he said that whenever there is a Christian as the New South Wales Police Commissioner, we were standing in his office and they had a photo of every police commissioner in New South Wales for the whole history of the police force. And he pointed out the ones who had been committed Christians. And he said that whenever there is a Christian at the head of the police force in New New South Wales, corruption shrinks dramatically. He said the strange thing is those, super, those, those men who were looking after the police force, they didn't do anything to deal with corruption. It was just the fact that their Christian presence there was shining a light on the corruption just by them being there that corruption shrinks down. And possibly that's what it was with Daniel. Knowing that Daniel would be in charge, that his honesty and his integrity would need to permeate everything that happened. Well, they tried to get some dirt on Daniel so that they could show the king, but they couldn't find anything. There were no skeletons in the cupboard. There was no dirty laundry that they could parade in front of the king. Well, when you can't find dirt, then you do the next best thing. You make some. And they knew that his Achilles heel was going to be his faith in God. So the plan was brilliantly simple, but also effective. Get the king to pass a law So that only Darius could be prayed to for an entire month. That's got to get Daniel into some trouble. And look at what we read. If you've got your Bible there, Daniel chapter 6, and look at verse number 6. So the administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except you, O King Darius, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Great ploy. Risky one, but a great ploy. The king agrees to this. thought the idea sounded quite nice, I imagine, that the whole empire would be praying to him for the month. Well, the trap was set and it doesn't take too long for Daniel to fall into it. What do you reckon you would have done if you were Daniel in that circumstance? There you are holding a fairly prominent position in the running of the country and a decree has been issued that you're not allowed to pray to anyone but King Darius for the next 30 days. Maybe you just put your prayer time on hold for a month. Would you think that might be a a sensible option? I mean, you'd probably be saying to yourself, I mean, I have an influential position here in the country. I I can do some great good here. There are going to be lots of opportunities for me to do good for people and, and even to witness to people in my role here. It's not worth losing, losing my job over a simple little thing like prayer. My fear is that most of us probably wouldn't mind putting our prayer life on hold for 30 days. Well, Daniel knew that being part of God's kingdom was the most important thing for him. Important above all else. More important than even being a part of Darius's kingdom. He knew that being faithful to God was more important than being faithful to the king. Now if you learn nothing else from looking at Daniel over these few weeks that we're looking, you've got to learn this as the lesson. That if you learn nothing else, you should be challenged by the example of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Here were ordinary men willing to do extraordinary things, willing to risk their lives because of their faith in God. Too often in our Christian lives, we'll put anything ahead of being part of God's kingdom. I mean, all too often we will value our personal happiness, our security, our bank balance, our jobs, our friendships, our reputation. We'll put all of those ahead of being part of God's kingdom. We'll sing hymns like, Be Thou My Vision. But what we really mean is, Be Thou My Vision, so long as it doesn't interfere with other things and other directions that I may have in my life. Well, not so for Daniel. Here is a man whose great priority is faithfulness to God in all things. And that should be a priority for us as well. Well, the trap is set and Daniel just dives straight into it. Look at what we read in verse number 10, chapter 6. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the window opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. They're the important words in this sentence. Daniel's just doing what he always did. He's continuing to live out his relationship with God. He's not praying just in spite of the decree. He's praying because this is what he always did. Daniel has gone to his upper room just as he normally did. He's opened the window and he's prayed just as he normally did. I'm guessing that the administrators couldn't believe that it was that easy to catch this guy. I mean, seriously, straight away, first day. We've got a 30-day period we've set here to try and catch him out and on the very first day we've caught him. They took great delight in going to Darius and pointing out that there is someone who has defied your decree, King Darius, who needs to be thrown to the lions. Well, the king was devastated. Had he known that that was their purpose in issuing the decree, I'm sure that he never would have issued it. He tries to find a loophole, but there is no loophole and he has no choice. The law is the law and even the king needs to abide by it. The lion's den is opened, Daniel is thrown in and the lion's den is sealed up. They guessed that they would come back in the morning and just find those little bits that the lions hadn't eaten. That night was a restless one for King Darius, couldn't eat couldn't sleep, tormented by the fact that he'd thrown his most trusted man into the lion's den. As soon as the sun came up, the king ran to the hole, removed the cover from the lion's den and called out, verse number 20, if you're following along, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And then look at what Daniel says to him. Daniel answered, O king, live forever. Would that be what you said to the guy who threw you into the lion's den for the night? O king, you twat, what were you thinking? That'd be what I'd want to say. O king, live forever. My God sent his angels and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight Nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, O king. It's an amazing response, isn't it? Well, the king now acknowledges that Daniel's God is the God who rules over all things and he issues a decree, verse 26. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed and his dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Darius acknowledges what Daniel already knew. Daniel knows that the kingdom that he is part of is far bigger and far more important than the one that Darius rules over. Daniel is part of God's kingdom, the God who saves. As I said before, there's a lot of overlaps between this story and the one that we read back in chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fire. But there are a few lessons for us to learn as well. One of the really important things to recognise from reading through Daniel is kingdoms come and kingdoms go. It's a different king that we're dealing with here in chapter 6 than the one that we were dealing with in chapter 3 and it'll be a different king by the end of the book as well. The fact is kingdoms come and kingdoms go but for God's people his kingdom remains forever. It wasn't too long ago that the Berlin Wall came down. I mean, that was seen as being one of the, the great changes in our society that East and West in Germany were able to meet. If you're old enough, you might remember what this flag is. Anyone remember? The USSR. It doesn't actually exist anymore. There's a tiny little confederation of Russian states that are still together, but this one's not around. Uh, remember when China was a communist country? This is a pretty staggering photo, isn't it? This is, this is Shanghai, uh, and the difference, just in a period of 20 years, between 1990 and 2010. I mean, Shanghai today is just like any other Western city. Enormously prosperous and growing rapidly. This last century, Americans were the superpower, but we've now moved into what our former prime minister used to call the Asian century, where China will become the significant world power. But you need to keep remembering, kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Rulers come and rulers go. But we are citizens of a kingdom that stands forever We are citizens of a kingdom where Jesus is king and always will be. See, in the end, it doesn't matter whether or not it's Babylon or Persia or the Liberal Party or the Labor Party or communism or democracy. Kingdoms come, governments come, and governments go. Rulers and leaders come and go. Daniel worked to be the best citizen that he could be In whatever kingdom he was living in. But above all, his priority in whichever kingdom it was that he was a part of was to be faithful to the God who rules over the greatest kingdom. One of the other things that you've got to learn from Daniel is that as people who want to live out our faith in God, it won't always be easy. In fact, we should expect hardship if we're serious about our faith. I mean, Jesus himself, on the night before he died, when he met together with his disciples, he said this, "'If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. "'If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. "'As it is, you do not belong to the world, "'but I have chosen you out of the world.'" That is why the world hates you. The fact that we are part of a different kingdom will sometimes mean that we don't fit in. Now, you work at, you, you work at being a part of the kingdom that you're in here. Of course you do. You, just as Daniel did, he sought to be the most, most faithful, honest person with great integrity in all that he did and rose to significant positions because of it. But ultimately the other kingdom, the one that's most important, that may mean that you don't always fit in. And it may mean that people don't like you because you don't fit in. You may look at the story of Daniel and think that he didn't suffer, that God rescued him from the lions. But here's a man who knew war. Here's a man who saw his own country torn apart by war. Here's a man who was hated by his workmates to the point that they wanted him dead. Here's a man who knew what it was to be thrown to the lions and I'm sure that there would have been an anxious moment or two as he makes his way to the floor of the lion's den. If you're serious about following Jesus, then you should expect that there could be suffering along the way. I'm not saying that you go looking for it, but you should be ready for it when it happens and you shouldn't be surprised if it does happen. We should be ready to face it, ready to be on the outer, ready to be considered out of touch, ready to be considered weird because we're part of another kingdom that's a higher priority for us and being part of that kingdom may mean that there is hardship. But without a doubt, the big lesson from Daniel is that our God is the God who saves. For Daniel, it was salvation from the terrible lion's den. For Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, it was salvation from the fire. But in both of those stories, did you know that there's another common denominator? That there's a heavenly agent in both stories, that fourth man in the fire and the angel that keeps the mouths of the lions closed? But each of those stories are really just a faint shadow of the salvation that God will bring through Jesus. We may not face blazing furnaces or lion's den, but God has rescued us from something far more serious than that. He's rescued us from an eternity of being separated from him. We've been rescued from death itself. We've just remembered the lengths that God is willing to go to for us to be able to be part of this kingdom. Jesus died so that we could be a part of this kingdom that stands forever. And we should never tire of hearing that good news. We should never tire of the idea that we have been saved from hell itself. We should never tire of thanking God for the incredible gift that he's given us. Darius decreed that everyone in his kingdom was to fear and reverence Daniel's God. And remember all that God had done for them. And let's face it, all God had done then was just save Daniel from some oversized cats. Jesus has rescued us from the power of sin and death. He's rescued us from hell itself. How much more should we reverence God for that salvation? How much more... Should we be telling others about the God who has saved us and brought us into this kingdom that will stand forever?